What the heck? This is Dan Gehek, your host. Let me entertain you. Well, welcome to 2020. The first podcast done by Danny DeHeck is now happening in real time, which is very exciting. So I hope you had a great holiday period and all that uh, stuff you say to everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, it's all great. So lots have been happening. Uh, selfishly, I might be uh, wanting to talk a bit about what I've been doing. And uh, if you want to, you can message me and tell me what you've been doing. But a lot has happened. I think my last saga was uh, my car, which I probably want to start on. I'm now the proud owner of a brand new 2020 Suzuki Swift. And I just wanted to talk about the experience I had with the rental, uh, not the rental car company, the insurance company. I think when I, I did my last podcast, I talked about how they rung me up and they said, look, uh, the girls and I have been reading your policy and did you know you're entitled to a brand new car because your car has been uh, written off and it's less than 12 months old. And they said, did you know it will even be delivered with a bow on it? And I thought, oh, that's lovely. As so happened, next minute, a couple of days later, just before I went away on my uh, overseas holiday, which I'll tell you about, my China, Bangladesh and uh, India holiday, they said, oh, look, they sent me an email, didn't have the guts to ring me up, said we made a mistake. They said, is there any finance on your vehicle? And I said, no, I actually walked in with a whole bucket load of money in my hand and handed them cash. There's no finance. But of course, yes, in my case, there was finance on the car. And they said, oh, because of that reason, we can't give you a new car. That policy only is entitled to people that don't have finance on their car. And I said, is that right? And they said, yeah. And they said, and... um." To date, we've only ever paid out one person um, with that thing that they sell you when you ring up and get your insurance. So I said, oh, well, so we're back to the valuation of $26,000. I'm still $2,000 short of breaking even because my car was sitting on the side of the road minding its own business when a 17-year-old kid didn't notice there was a car parked on the side of the road and he drove a customer's car that is relocating after it had been serviced into the back of mine. And it shunted my car into the gutter and um, collapsed the front wheel as well as damaging the back. And it took a lot of convincing, thanks to um, uh, one of my members of my Elite Six crew who added it all up and convinced the guy that was trying to decide whether to fix it or write it off, um, that it got written off. And uh, basically, once it was written off, then we had another saga of what is a fair value for an 11th-month-old car. So as I said my last podcast, they first come back at 24500 And I said, really? So you're telling me I've lost, uh, oh, how much is that, six, 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 oh, about $7,000 in 11 months in a car that's worth $31,000? And they said, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. And they come back with a valuation, a readjusted valuation of $26,000, um, governed on a car they found on the internet that was selling for $26,500. That uh, was selling for $26,500. That was um, at 13,500 Ks on the clock. So long story short, I found that that car that I was comparing mine against was a Japanese import, not like for like. And I said, look, I've had enough. I'm going to go to that guy that um, I've got to have to say the word. It's Orbispin, Orbispin. But the the insurance people that look after us when dealing with insurance company. Once I said that, 
if you are in a bit of bind and you threaten, or even if you do take them to the insurance council, it costs them money. So then they take that money there that would um, cost them into consideration when um, figuring out how much to pay you out. So they came back and said, okay, we will pay you now $27,000 because I did have a valuation from the people that I purchased my vehicle from and they said it should be worth $27,000 and they said they couldn't use that because it was a conflict of interest but they did use that valuation when I threatened to get um, legal which is ironic. So anyway the whole process was really good so then I ring up Holland Suzuki here in Christchurch and I said oh, I'd like a grey one they said we don't have one I said I'm going away for three weeks we said we'll order you one and I thought great I'm going to go on my holiday I'm going to come back to a brand new car. So when I came back on the 4th of January, I rang up Hollands and said, I am back, how's my car? And they said, who are you? Oh, the guy you're talking to is away on holiday, and I don't know, we've got a grey one. And I said, well, I ordered one before Christmas. So they finished up, they did find it, and then I said, right, how do we go about this? And they said, um, or I said because I've got personalised plates and I want a tow bar this time and all that sort of stuff so then they got the car ready they said oh we don't have it ready here's a loan car they're really really good for giving you loan cars and we'll ring you up thursday uh if we don't have one or if it's ready so at four o'clock on thursday they rang me up and they said yep uh your cars are ready to pick up and i said oh uh have you got the have you licensed it with the personalized plates oh that's right oh silly us we forgot the personalized plates oh come and give us the plates and um and you can take the car home tonight. So, oh, okay, so I stopped work, went all the way in there with my plates, and then the owner of the company came out and said, oh, no, we can't actually let you have the car because of insurance reasons and the plates and blah, blah, blah. So can you come back tomorrow morning? And I said, yeah, okay. So I came back tomorrow morning, picked up the car, and then um, we thought, oh, we'll take it for a bit of a spin to Medvin. And uh, halfway to Medvin, I said to my partner, um, I don't remember seeing a tow bar on the back of the car. Oh, so we stopped the car and had a look, no tow bar. So we ring them up and we go, um, didn't we price in a tow bar with this car and you forgot to put it on? They said, oh, no, we forgot to price in a tow bar. I thought every step along, I said to the guy, I said, look, every part about getting this new car has been painful. And um, and I said, I just couldn't believe they didn't put a tow bar on it. I said to the guy, I said, I'm the customer. I only really have one job to do. And I said, I have personalized plates and I want a tow bar. And then you, you know, for whatever reason, and he said, "Oh, look, um, look, come back and we'll put a tow bar on it." I said, "I'm sick and f tired of coming back and forth." Uh, and they said, "Look, come back, we'll give you a free tow bar," which is really, really generous. Um, but I did feel like I was entitled to it. So, anyway, so the next step was getting the car signed, written again. Uh, I do uh, all the paperwork of signing off the old vehicle and getting the thing. You don't want to hear about that. But when I'm in over in China with no internet and uh, Bangladesh. I had to correspond with the finance company. They said to me they had a shortfall of about $300 and they wouldn't release the finance on the vehicle until I paid that. Um, I got told by the insurance company that they were going to pay out the $27,300, including the sign writing, to the finance company because they are the first one that gets dibs on any money owing because it's all secured against the vehicle. And then after I got back home, I'm looking through the paperwork and I see that they've just given the finance company $27,000 and that's why the finance company asked me to top up the difference. So then I'm thinking, I thought they said they would pay for the sign writing. So I've already booked it in to get sign writing. It was only $280 because I have uh, very simple sign writing, 12 dots. 
And so I send an email to the finance company and say, please confirm the payout figure. And then I write to the insurance company at the same time of a BCC. And I get an email back from the insurance company. Oh, sorry, we haven't paid you out yet. Uh, we, we've just put the money into your bank account. It will take two or three days to show. And so I wrote back to the insurance company and said, I'm glad I asked. And then uh, I said, do you actually have my bank account number? I haven't heard back yet. But anyway, they, uh, it's good to get on their toes. I remember years ago, I had a brand new two-week-old um, SS Commodore, and somebody did a U-turn in front of me, and I collided with them and caused about $17,000 worth of damage. And uh, it took them six or eight weeks to actually fix the um, yeah, to actually fix the vehicle. And then um, because if, though the guy admitted it was his fault at the, uh, at the intersection... Um, later on he claimed that I didn't have my lights on and then it was uh, under debate whose fault it was and that was his way of trying to get out of it and I remember at the time when I made the claim I said to the insurance company well I did have an eyewitness sitting beside me driving down the road because they had a Holden and they were admiring my brand new SS Holden it was just a new model and they stopped and said we saw everything and then they got their details so there's no way this guy could have got out of it but that also meant that it put my no claims, um, you know, how much you have to pay the first $750 at the time. And then they tell me, oh, I'm sorry, because we don't know whose fault it was, um, we have to get that back off the person and you're the first one to get paid. And I remember it was two years later uh, that I remember that I was entitled to this money and even though he might have been paying $5 a week, um, you know, I had to ring them up and say, hey, have you got that money? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we have got that money. <laughs> so it just must be the part of the policy. So the whole experience of getting the car, yes, I've got a brand new car. Uh, to date, it's cost me $1,151. Uh, and I, somebody suggested that I write to Blackwell's Mazda, which is the company of the other driver, and say, look, I'm out of pocket. $1,151.16 if you must know and um, my car was minding its own business on the side of the road uh, would you guys look at paying that for me I don't see why I should be out of pocket and if they say no um, they said to me they wrote back they've never written back to me in t uh, until yet now and they said that they've passed it on to their insurance company and um, I doubt very much the insurance company will pay for it I'm actually going to take uh, the matter to the small claims court and see how I stand. Not because I want the money, I do want the money, of course, it's a stupid thing to say, but I just want to follow the whole process through so I'm well educated to help people who may be going through insurance claim. But the first rule I'd say, if you're ever dealing with the insurance company, don't take their word for it. Always push as much as you can. Uh, I literally would have been out of pocket uh, if I took the first offer, um, I don't know, three or $4,000. Alrighty, um, so what else has been happening? Well, since... Uh, Christmas time on the 13th of December I um, jumped on an airplane went to China uh, for three days and then I uh, went to Bangladesh and I stayed there I didn't count but maybe only about seven days and then I went to India and I travel those countries because I just love them and I hate them they're very hard to travel and I had some amazing travel experiences, and I did some things. I've said to people before, I don't like myself when I travel, because I'm a pretty hard traveler. And if you give me a hard time, and you keep continuously asking me if I want to talk, talk, rickshaw, or a CNG, I get a bit grumpy after a while. And um, sometimes you don't like who you become when you become a traveler, because you literally 
um, it's just getting bashed all the time by people uh, conning you and all sorts of things. So I got got some pretty good systems in place. I must say I was totally impressed with China. I found some of the most amazing spots. I've only been to Hong Kong. I've been to um, Canton, uh, Guangzhou, and their cities. And you can never really judge a country on their big cities because as soon as you get to the mainland and you get to those off the beaten tracks, lots of things change. But I must say, uh, going to um, Canton was just absolutely amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The reason why, I'm a bit of a walker, and I love looking at culture. Um, I love going down little dark alleyways. I'm a street photographer. I love photography. And I just managed to get some really awesome photos at the right time. So I did um, a bit of TikToking as well. I uh, Basically, I was trying to learn how to become a V-blogger a little bit. And I found I had what they call a pocket Osmo, which is a brilliant little wee handheld camera uh, that has a, a gimbal on it. So it stabilizes all the footage you take. So anything you film is nice and smooth and uh, it's really uh, inconspicuous. And then I had my Sony A6000. And, uh, and then so I had a mixture of filming equipment. But for TikToking, I found it best actually using my cell phone which is a bit poor, rather than filming it on a good camera and then trying to convert it into your phone, it was just time consuming. So it, when I was in China, I didn't really get much really good footage. But the purpose of it was to upload it and learn about the algorithms, I can't even say it properly, or well, the analytics of how to get traction with a TikTok. And one of the best TikToks I've got, it seems to be growing at a thousand uh, visitors per day, but it loops and it's only, I think it's seven and a half seconds long. And also I put words on the screen and I put um, Dhaka, the world's most overpopulated city, 20 million people or something I can't remember, but it was in the center of the screen. So when it was uh, not open on a phone you could still see there was words on it and read them so it's sort of plastered over the top of the photo probably distracts a little bit but I, I'm putting all these sort of the looping of a TikTok if you don't know what TikTok is it's like Instagram um, because if it gets played more than once or twice or three or four times you get more points and then TikTok promote that or feature that video more so i learned quite a bit so i've actually got about five tiktok videos that i put on my tiktok that got um over thirty thousand views and one of them was two monkeys that looked like they were shagging actually uh, and they seemed to loop it just at the wrong time and as soon as you hit it they they move away and you can't sort of see what was happening and then i think that's why that one gets looked at that got fifty six thousand people looked at that within one day and it hasn't really grown since which is ironic so anyway so i got some really good footage so in china i did a video through the streets for seven minutes and down the same street i turned around got my camera out went back down the street and then took photos and the sunlight was in the perfect place my partner she is a photographer and i was basically putting them all in dropbox and then we created another folder where she was putting all the edited photos. So as I traveled every day, I was getting little photos coming through that had been edited. And because we were taking the photos in raw, um, the edits are amazing. And even I was surprised how good they come up. So it was really, really awesome. Quite a joy, actually. So if you don't know, I traveled 25 countries back in um, 2000. 
1999 and then I come back uh, over the, the new year period and what I wanted to do at the time is make it a business trip. So I come up with a cunning plan and because I had a website called New Zealand's Information Network which was a travel website and I had a lot of international people travelling I thought what I'll do is I'll start up another website called worldelectroniccards.com and I would have 25 photos of each country I visited and then people who were homesick when they were travelling to New Zealand could email, uh, pick a country they were in and email their family back home so my whole goal was each country I went to was to get 25 photos and then basically leave. So one of the photos that stood out the most to me was three little girls. And they, uh, I call them street kids, they're all dressed up in ragamuffin clothes. And you often see their parents work in a street corner for money. And then the wee children will go along buses and or tap on windows asking for money and begging. And here I am in the back of a bus in India and travelling by bus in India is hard work. Best way to go is by train if you're looking for it. And these three little girls were looking at me and I said, look, uh, and I was trying to take their photos and they kept giggling and moving and they were having fun. And because I had a Sony Cybershot, I can't remember the brand name, but uh, it had a Carlos lens and it was a two megabyte camera. Every time somebody moved in a photo, it would go blurry. So I said to the girls, please stay still, stay still. <laughs> and I was trying to get a photo. It didn't matter how many times I tried, they were laughing and giggling too much. And when you witness beggars on the street, and they have that lovely joy and that laughter in their voice. It's just uh, you sort of realise they get we've got our priorities wrong in the, in the Western world, first world problems. So anyway, I said, look, here's here's a couple of rupees if you smile, and I got a couple of photos. So my whole trip and all the photos, twenty five countries I went to, I got some amazing shots. I got the pyramids, I got the Eiffel Tower, and I, I went to Petra and I saw. Um, you know uh, all the wonderful things. I went down the Nile in Egypt and. Um, those three little girls really stood out in my head. So I wanted to go away and do some more street photography and try to capture another photo like that. Here I am. I am in Gaia, and I want to go to... I'm just going to ask my partner to say, how's the name? Varanasi. Varanasi in India. Now, if you're not familiar with Varanasi, that's the place in India where everyone wants to be buried, and it's a holy city, and... uh, they take their bodies there and they burn them and then they put them into the, the Ganges River. What river is it called? Ganges. Yeah. Ganges? Probably said that right. I hope so. Better be right. People will complain. Yeah, so that's. Um, so anyway, I thought I'd get a train. People told me the train takes five or six hours. Um, I, if you're in India and you want to go to India, uh, you need to book your trains. At, um, they reckon 100 days out if you want an air-conditioned luxury one. So I didn't. Of course, I went up and said, have you got a train ticket? And he said, yep, we've got a train ticket, but it's nothing flash. And I said, yep, okay, I'll take anything. So here I am on a, sitting on a train, wooden seats, thinking it's going to take five or six hours. And it finished up taking 11 and a half hours. The train was delayed. It didn't leave at 2. It left at 2.30. So we didn't get there until 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm a pretty light traveler. I took six and a half kgs of uh, bags. So I didn't have big warm jackets. I did have a mini sleeping bag. I had um, a couple of layers of clothing, and on this train it was freezing. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I've got my sleeping bag out, wrapped around my head. I didn't want to drag it on the floor, because if you've seen what they walk through and step in and all that sort of stuff, you don't want to do that. So I'm trying to keep warm with a blanket-like sleeping bag. 
And it's not even a sleeping bag, to be honest. It's actually a sleeping bag cover. <laughs> so it's even worse. But anyway, I'm just it's a matter of survival. And they stopped at every single station along the way. It was just crazy. So that was a hard case. And then one station, which I'm looking at it, I've got, uh, if you ever travel and you don't have cell phone coverage, download Topo Maps and you download the World Topo Maps, cost you $6. And basically when you do get internet coverage and you know where you're going, you bring up all the maps and they download to your phone. So that's what I did, and basically I mapped the whole trip. And then when I'm with no internet, I could actually see where we are. So I'm looking at the map, and I'm going, look, we've done one-eighth of the trip. Well, we've done 80% of the trip. We, we got to a major train station, and it was like being at an airport. And we sat there for over an hour in the freezing cold, waiting for the train to get permission to carry on to the next uh, stop. So if you haven't been to India before... This is what you hear all day long. Spit. They're over chewing tobacco, or there's some weird rule that you're not allowed to swallow your um your phlegm or your what your whatever, and it's just disgusting. So instead of spitting out the floor, thank goodness, on the train they open the window. So when the train stopped, they open the window and they'll be spitting out the windows. A lot of them. So you always got this lovely cold breeze coming in. It didn't add to it. And the guy sitting in front of me had his legs up like it was squatting, and every now and again he'd let uh, a fart rip. And I thought, oh my God, I just want to get off this train. And um, what else happened? Uh, oh, and then I, th- I, w- I was so cold, I really wanted to walk around the carriage and take photos of people who were sleeping and all wrapped up. It was like being on a train with a ghost train, and um, it, and everyone was just stuck in time. But anyway, I took one photo, and I got these three guys all staring at me. They couldn't speak any English. And that was my replacement for the three little ragamuffin girls. So it's quite a cool photo. So if you look around my uh, Facebook page or you'll see it, you will not miss the photo. But three guys staring at me. So that was exciting. I got that photo. So yes, I got some good photos in China. Uh, when I went to where they um, bury the dead, uh, well, they burn the dead. That was quite an interesting thing because I didn't know where it was, but I knew once you got to the Ganges River, uh, we walked through all the markets, got down to the river, and it's a pretty impressive-looking river, I must say. It's one of the most uh, sacred places I've been to. I turned right, and I, I keep walking down there about a kilometre, and then I found a place where they actually had a fire, and they actually were burning bodies. So I did take a few photos. I've got some pretty inconspicuous gear, and I got my photos, and then somebody saw me taking the photos. They said, oh, no photos, no photos. I said, oh, sorry, I so put the camera away. And then I, I went for a, a 5K walk, and walked through the town and stayed away from the touristy area as much as I could. And I just got some really awesome photos around the area. The architecture is amazing. The river's awesome. People ask me if I want to go on a boat ride. And people ask me if I want to shave. Like, I was really hairy. And, like, I quite like my hairiness. Another guy grabbed my hand and started massaging me. Uh, we did have cell phone coverage. And I was doing a um, FaceTime call with my partner. And uh, she was laughing because of how many people were coming up and asking me if I wanted to buy something. I found India you know, a lot more uh, intense for people asking for you to use their services than Bangladesh. And I want to say Bangladesh to the last. So anyway, long story short, I finished up thinking, right, I've done a big walk, done about five or six Ks walking. I thought, I'm going to go left. So when I went left, I actually, that's where I should have gone. And I found the actual most holiest part where there's people there who are telling you not to take any photos from now on. I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, it was quite breathtaking. So a guy wanted to be my tour guide, and I said, no, no, I'm fine. And eventually he just keeps standing there, and he keeps telling me more and more about it. So I was learning quite a lot. And out of interest, they, they have a fire that's been burning for 3,000 years, 
So the fire's never gone out. So it's it's part of the holy um, ceremony. And they said that you can take photos if you want, but you have to pay, and the money goes to the families because the people so much want to be bury, their, bury their families there. So the going rate to take photos was about 10,000 rupees, uh, which is about 100 bucks. And I said, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I don't want to. And they said, the money goes to the families, and the families are really poor. And if you've got more money, you can buy wood that burns hotter and the bodies burn faster. And they said, today we have 200 bodies that are, are going to be burnt. And I'm going, oh, wow. Um, and they said, look, if, um, and then I said to the guy, look, I'm fine here. And he said, oh, uh, you can come up to the family area if you want. I said, no, no, I'm fine. So eventually he talked me into it. I said, okay, so here I am. I've got four people. And they what they do is they stack them in wood, in between wood, and they light fire to them. So there was four in a row, real close together. And then there was another two on my right. So six bodies, and I had to walk between them all. Now that you might think it was smelly and it was terrible and it was gross. Um, it wasn't too bad. I didn't actually smell any bad odors, uh, ironically. But the smoke was in my eyes so much that my eyes were watering. I could hardly see where I was walking. And I had to walk upstairs. I walk upstairs and there's three levels to this building that I can remember. And the top floor, he said, that's for people who are just about to die on their deathbed. And when they die, we, they come down and we burn the bodies. And then they put the remains of the body into the Ganges River, which is quite hard to see. Now, it's not for the light-hearted. I've seen some freaky stuff in my time. But no one wants to see a body being burnt and bits and pieces coming out as they burn. But because of the, the craziness or... Uh, off the whole lot and the abnormalness of it, it's kind of, you're, you're sort of in shock actually, you're seeing this thing. So bodies are literally coming in, they dress them all up and they have the flowers and they're all covered in, you don't see, you know, or you do see, but you, you know, it's all done respectfully. So when I got up the top, the guy said to me, who was taking me, who was trying to be a guide, was telling me I could pay him a couple hundred rupees and take a photo. And I said, look, I don't, my eyes are watering so much, I didn't really want to. But when I looked to the left, to me, there was a couple of people laying under cover with no head. <laughs> well, not, not they had a head, but they were all covered up and they weren't moving at all. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, there's bodies everywhere. It's like being in a mortuary. So that, that was pretty amazing, I must say. So then because I was, because I went along with it, then I said to the guy, I'm, you know, I'm going. And he got told off by somebody more senior. Long story short, I said, look, I'm going and you aren't the real deal. So he started, um, you know, sort of get quite aggressive at asking me for money. And I had to sort of be really firm with him and tell him to bugger off. So then, because where I were, I got to walk out the wee alleyways where they bring in the bodies. So you'd hear this wee chant. They have a wee sort of ritual as they walk along with the bodies. So you'd hear them coming. So I did actually manage to get some footage of that and also a couple of photos of them walking through the narrow streets carrying the bodies through. It was absolutely amazing, and it was sort of like, it wasn't, I didn't want to take the photos out of, um, I didn't feel I was being disrespectful taking the photos. It's all part of the culture, and um, no one was telling me off or anything like that, except the guy that was doing, being the tour guide. So I was just quite fortunate when you put yourself in those situations, you actually get an opportunity to, to be somewhere where you wouldn't normally be, even though, um, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It was just amazing. Um, so that was India. And then the other one I went to 
was a city which I can't remember. Oh, I can actually. I'll spell it for you. It's J E S S M O R E. And I was calling it Jesmore, but I think it's called Jesmore. Can't quite pronounce it, but that is meant to be the hometown of Hartma Gandhi. And so when I got to that town, I flipped a coin sort of thing and I thought, should I go left, should I go right? So I went left, walked across the bridge, walked into a city, uh, the poor part of the city, and I noticed that there was some, it looked like somebody that was setting up for a concert. And I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. And there was a lot of police vehicles around, but at that time there wasn't many police around. And I thought, I'll go in there and see what's happening, see what because I did manage to go to another sort of concert somewhere else in India. And that was interesting. So anyway, the organiser comes out and he goes, oh, g'day, how are you? Because like, I was trying to walk around being inconspicuous, but I'm a, like the only white guy sort of thing and backpacker and uh, my clothes are all odd. And so he said, oh, I'm, I'm organising this event. And I said, oh, what's happening here? And he said, oh, we've got the police commissioner for India and um, quite a few VIPs coming in. They're going to do a talk. I said, oh, all right. And he said, um, are you a reporter? And I said, oh, no, I'm just a tourist. I've been traveling. So where are you from? And he's really nice and all that sort of stuff. And they said, look, you're in a real rough part of the town. And he said, you shouldn't be here. And this isn't really the place for a tourist. And I said, it's too dangerous for you. Because this is, if you listen to this later on they're having all these um, riots in New Delhi about the new immigration law where basically if you don't have the paperwork and even if you've been in India for 70 years and you don't have the paperwork they're going to um, export you out and you'll probably finish up in Bangladesh so anyway they would do the police commissioner was coming along and also um, a politician and also a celebrity and at the end of it when I uh, saw it there was actually 20 to 25 VIPs they call them VIP status is everything when you're over there. So anyway, he said, look, look, cost you 10 rupees. I'll put you in a, in a rickshaw, CNG, go to this part of the town. I'll tell them where to go and have a look around there. And that's more ready for tourists. So I said, oh, okay. So it was 10 o'clock. By about quarter to two, I'd done my dash. And I thought, I'm going to go back. So I walked all the way back. It's about three or four k's. And I got to uh, this place that was been going for about uh, half an hour. So it's 2.30, and then I just thought, oh, I'll just walk in, and then the police go, oh, who are you? And I go, oh, I'm just having a look. And they said, uh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a, um, I don't know who I am. I'm just a traveler having a look around India. Like, is it okay for me to go in here? And he went, oh, yep, yep, okay, and you go. So I went in there, and then the next thing he's telling me to come back, and wait, 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 he's going, and they've all got, like, sawn off shotguns sort of things and AK-47s, to be honest. And then I thought, oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, all right. And I said, oh, hi. And he said, are you a reporter? And I said, no, no, not a reporter. And he goes, oh, what's in the bag? So I said, oh, just dirty clothes. Don't touch those. <laughs> and uh, have a look at my, um, he looked at my laptop and then he's still suspicious about me being a reporter. So I opened my front bag and just said, oh, yeah, it's a, I have got a camera. And um, and he goes, oh, look, no, you, you can't come in. It's not the right place for you to come. Um, and there's probably, I'm, I'm guessing about 20,000 people there. And I said, oh, why not? And he said, oh, it's not really. I said, oh, I'm really interested in it. I just want to sort of see what's going on. And he said, oh, well, if you want to come in, you have to ask my boss. So, okay, where's he? Uh, he's over there. So he points to me and he watches me walk over the other side of the paddock. And his boss has sort of got his legs spread right apart, sitting there like he's half sleeping. And he's the head moncho. Now, I'm talking about 
I'm guessing maybe three to five hundred people, either in police uniform or army, all dressed up in riot gear with machine guns and the whole nine yards. And then I have to talk to the head moncho there to see if I can go and have a look. And he said, are you a reporter? I said, no, I'm not a reporter. <laughs> so anyway, he said, oh, yeah, go on in. So I did. I thought, oh, cool. So I managed to get back in there. And then I thought, oh, I'll get about two or three layers back from the start. And then the speakers were really trying to get the audience um, on their side. They were... They had people being funny, everyone was laughing, then they had a real emotional, high-powered speeches. I was there for an hour and a half. Uh, they had people with, uh, they had drones flying around filming everyone. Uh, they had people with plaques that were too scared to pull them out, and they were obviously waiting for the right time to pull out these plaques and sort of state their opinion about the new immigration law that's coming. So anyway, I thought, oh, after an hour and a half, I thought I videoed a little bit. I got a couple of good bits for my TikTok account, and I've got some footage I haven't put online yet. I'm going to get out of here before it finishes, because I think that's weird. If they have any problems, um, they had water cannons and all that sort of stuff, I better get out. So I turn around, sneak out there, and it's pushing past everyone. And then a couple of guys go, oh, good day, how you doing? Can we take a selfie uh, with you in it? And I go, oh, yeah, okay, because what happens when you're asked to take a selfie is their friends turn up and then before you know it you've got 10 20 people around and you're the center of attraction so the next guy guy goes can we get a photo of you holding our flag um yeah okay can you hold this plaque up and hold... <laughs> so here they take me photos i couldn't even read the plaque because it was in their language i hate to think what it said and i'm just dreading the fact that this um tourist is um on the front uh, cover of some newspaper and he doesn't even know he's there but anyway i managed to get out of the air and uh when when traveling in india i didn't feel very safe when traveling bangladesh uh i felt very safe uh, the bangladesh people are very very nice they're not trying to push things down your throat um they want to be they want you to enjoy their country they want you to experience their culture and unfortunately i didn't have that same experience in india as much and i have done india before and if you don't know when i traveled india the first time uh, i found it one of the hardest countries that i've ever traveled and i vowed i would never go back but funny enough it's the country i sort of drawn to go back to the most so this trip was all about putting myself outside my comfort zone even more and that's why i went to bangladesh now, the problem with bangladesh they're a very poor country and they don't have the money that maybe india has but they don't and also they don't have, um, it's a very small country, I think it was 160 million people crammed into the size of the South Island. Um, Draka uh, was a city with 20 million people in it, and it's the most densely populated city in the world. So I, when I went to Bangladesh, I went from China to Bangladesh. I turned up at uh, around about 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. Everyone got off the plane, uh, and then uh, you can't really get a visa um you can't really get a visa uh simply because um you need to apply an arrival so out of the oh, i'm guessing maybe 100 people that were trying to uh that were trying to fill out the visa application it's a very slow process there's only two people looking at the visa application so most of the time if you go to bangladesh and you don't have a visa you're going to be in a queue for at least two hours Guy comes up to me in a suit, and he goes, um, "Oh, have you? How you doing? You know, have you got your paperwork?" He said, "Yep, I got it all sorted, thanks." And he looks at it and goes, "Oh, no, 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 that's all wrong. You can't use that paperwork, even though I just printed it off the internet." He said, "Look, I'll help you fill out all the paperwork if you give me your passport." I'm thinking, oh, "I don't really want to give this guy my passport." So then he looks at the guard while the guy filling out the paper at the other end of the queue, and he gives him sort of a wink so I can see. And I thought, "Oh, I see, they're mates." 
And this guy probably doesn't really work there. But anyway, so I thought, oh, we're not, I'll play you silly game. You're going to fill out all the paperwork and get it right. Um, things like um, you need a phone number. I need a contact number in Bangladesh. I said, oh, I don't have one. They don't understand what that means. So I said, oh, well, I'll be staying at this hotel. How about we get on the internet and search for uh, the phone number of the hotel and use that? So he let me tether onto his phone. We found the place I hadn't, hadn't actually got a booking at and used their phone number. So that was one obstacle. So after he filled out all the paperwork, he pushed past everyone and went straight to the front. And the guy said, yep, that's all good, done. Then I had to go pay my 51 US dollars to another guy. And if you ever go to Bangladesh, it's 51 dollars. I don't know why, but they do give you change, so don't worry about that. And then I've got my paperwork in order. I've played the police thing. I just have to go through and get stamped off. So I'm sitting in the, standing in the queue and the guy in the suit goes to me, oh, and he whispers, give me, give me some money. And I go, no. And he goes, no, you need to give me some money because I helped you. And I said, how much money? And, and I go, five bucks. And he goes, no, 20 bucks. I said, I'm not giving you 20. I said, I'll give you 10 if you go away. And he goes, no, you must give me 20. And I go, how much do I need to give you? <laughs> Long story short, gave him 10 bucks, told him to bugger off, and he did. Um, and I did see him on the outside of the airport helping somebody else. So it's just how they do their stuff. But anyway, I get to the policeman and tell him, I, uh, give him, I try to make small talk, not a bar of it. And he goes, where's your receipt for your accommodation? I said, I don't have it. I haven't actually paid yet. I said, I'll get it when I pay tonight because I'm staying there. And he said, I need the receipt um, or you can't come in. And I said, I don't have it. <laughs> anyway, he goes, he gets sick of me. So he stamps my passport. I tell you what, I got out of there probably an hour and a quarter, hour and a half. Uh, and everybody that was on my plane, I'm sure no one else was outside of immigration, even the, even the locals. It's just the slowest and the most craziest immigration department i've seen ever i've been to 30 plus countries anyway so i get outside the immigration area and now i have to exchange money so when you exchange money there there's 15 to 25 money exchanges and they're all can't come out their cubicle but they all on the window tapping at you telling you to come so i thought oh i know what i'll do i'll play that game who gives me the best rate and i said i want to change 300 us dollars and they have a board saying they'll give you 86 um whatever it is, 86 US cents to whatever. Anyway, so I figured out then, I said, well, I've got 300, what's the maximum? So one of them shows me the maximum amount of money he's going to give me. And then I said to the others, well, he's given me the best rate, so I'll have to go with him. So where's your passport? Give him my passport. And then he, I pull out my money and he's, oh, you've got $50 notes. The rate I gave you is um, only for $100 US notes. <laughs> as if it makes a difference. So I said, forget you, mate. I didn't. So then I went back to the guy that gave me the second highest rate, and because I didn't use him, he said, you weren't loyal. So he wouldn't serve me anymore, and he didn't want my money. <laughs> so it was like, oh, my goodness. So then I went around the corner, found somebody else, and I realized that it didn't matter what I did, I wasn't going to get a better rate than 86 since uh, uh, to the US whatever it was for their money so it was a bit of a hard case but anyway when I got out of the airport um, I thought well I don't know what I'll do um, I remember going into the Vodafone shop before I left and I'll um, now I've got uh, internet back because I had my roaming back and because when I was in uh, what do they call that place uh, China I didn't have roaming and it's $7 a day um, but you the, the people when people ring you or your usual data it's really expensive but Vodafone did have a thing where it, on their app that you could buy 25 uh, gigabytes of data for $100 and I thought well for $100 
that will solve all my problems. So I purchased that, and then I thought I'll do a Facebook Live about how I'm now in Bangladesh. And three minutes into the Facebook Live, I get a, a text from Vodafone saying, you've used 80% of your data. And I thought, what? So then I thought, oh, something's wrong. So five, ten minutes later, I buy another $100 worth because I thought, oh, it must have broken or something. So then, zap, that all went just about straight away. I managed to get an Uber, though, to my hotel that I didn't have a booking at. And so that was $200. And then... Uh, a couple of days later, I thought, well, they must have it right now, so I ordered another $50 worth. So literally paid $250. It wasn't gigabytes, it was megabytes. But it was, so that that was like, oh my God, I've just paid $250 for 60 um, megabytes. So I rang up Vodafone when I got to uh, India and I complained, and they, um, if you have to do that ever, they do let you off if you've been with them for 25 years like I have. They basically, I, I said that it was labelled very similar to gigabytes and megabytes. I said, I went into your Vodafone shop and they told me, blah, blah, blah. And I said, they said I should just get the big gigabyte plan while I'm over there and be done with it. Even they didn't notice. I said, if your shop doesn't notice the small print, nor does people like me. And long story short, they said they'd give me 50% off. So I said, no, that's not good enough. Supervisor, and said, well, you won't get any more than that. So after getting the supervisor and talking for another 45 minutes, I actually only paid $100 for my mistake. And it was my mistake. I didn't read it properly, but they did use compassion and save me a bit of money. But anyway, side story. So when I'm in Bangladesh, um, it's just crazy. It, it's just uh, I, I, it's just on steroids crazy. There's no... Uh, like in China, there were subways, and once you got your head around them, they were awesome. Um, in India, they had subways as well, which is pretty cool. But in Bangladesh, they just had buses. And a couple of the travel stories I would like to tell you is I wanted to go to the jungle and see the biggest forest in the world, the mango trees. And that was really exciting, so I got pretty close. Uh, I took one trip that took uh, seven and a half or maybe uh, eight and a half hours overnight on a bus. And I got to uh, a city that meant I would have had taken ferries, boats, and the like to get to. It would have taken me another 12 hours to get into the forest. But by that time, I was getting pretty tired of traveling Bangladesh. And this last trip I took was eight hours. So then I um, went to book a flight, uh, a flight out. And uh, there was no airport where I were. The closest airport was two hours away. So when I was trying to book my flight, they wanted to know where I was staying. And I said, I don't have accommodation, haven't booked any yet. But they said, oh, well, we can organize accommodation. You go, no, no, I can do that. Oh, but we need to pick you up in the morning because we have a complimentary uh, pickup service. And I said, well, is it free? And they go, oh, no, you've got to pay for it. And I said, well, it's not complimentary if you buy the air tickets with us. And it all got really confusing. But So I said, look, just book me the tickets in the city I have to be at, I'll find my own way there, there's buses leaving every 10 minutes, I'll get on a bus, I'll be there in the morning and I'll find somewhere, and they said, oh, I don't know, you shouldn't do that, blah, 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 they got a translator guy in, and, and at the end of the day, I had to book two flights to get a flight to Kolkata in India, and uh, they said, oh, we can't book the flight unless we see your visa, so, oh, yeah, yeah, we get a bit arrogant at that time, <laughs> pulled out my visa, and the guy looks at it, and goes, it's expired, your visa's not current, and I think, I've got no Indian visa. Oh no, I prepared early. Now, if you do go to India, they issue these visas. Um, you get 30 days to use a visa. As soon as it's issued, you've got to be doing your travel and come back within 30 days. So I'd issued my, mine ran out on the 20th of December, and I was trying to go in, into India on the 25th. 
So I thought, oh, right, now I really do need to go back to Draka. Draka. I need to stay in a nice motel where I can get internet and apply for a visa again. So all my travel plans sort of changed. So next thing, I got a bus and I met this guy and he said, oh, it's only four and a half hours on the bus back to the main city. And I said, well, how come it took me eight hours on the way here? They said, oh, you took the bus that the bus gets on the ferry and goes over this um, bus that you've taken will be dropped off on one side of the river. We take the 45 minutes over as a passenger ferry and then we get on a new bus. And because we do it that way and we don't stay on the bus, um, it's only 45, um, sorry, it's only four and a half hours. So I thought, oh my goodness, wish I knew that at the start. Being on a bus in Bangladesh, you don't really want to be uh, this dangerous man. So anyway, that was cool. So then, because I've befriended him, he's. I said, I've got to apply for an Indian visa because mine's expired. And, and I said, so I'm going back, getting a good hotel so I can get on the internet. And he's really nice. They're all lovely, these Bangladesh people. And he said, oh, you can use my um, tether on the internet uh, with my phone. So here I am in the back of a bus in a real bumpy, with a laptop, I think I had about like 48% battery life on it. And I'm trying to complete a five-page visa application so I can go to India uh, with the 3G coverage going in and out. And you have to upload a photo at the right side. But fortunately, when I did my documents the first time, I saved everything just in case. And then you have to upload an itinerary. uh, And it also can't be more than 200 megabytes. I think it's megabytes. Um, as a PDF. So most PDFs, when you save them yourself, unless you have a um, Adobe PDF writer, it's very hard to get a PDF that isn't massive. So fortunately enough, I'd save that document as well, but then I had to remember it was, had to access my Dropbox, and just a whole ragmarole of stuff. took me an hour to do it, managed to apply for the visa, and that took 36 hours. If you apply for the Indian visa, they don't actually tell you when it's been approved, but they do give you a number where you can check the status of your visa application so i didn't remember about that to about 36 hours and then when i did do, do it it was approved so that means that now i've got my visa for india i could go book a ticket and i think i did that on the 31st of december um, so that actually tells me a bit actually because i had traveled on the 13th of december stayed in china three days so i did actually stay i think in bangladesh oh no i'm wrong i don't know how long it was so yeah i think i was there for seven or eight days but bangladesh is a beautiful country uh rubbish everywhere um you know i learned that uh, the locals don't use knife and forks they use their hands to eat their food and at one point uh, I met this lovely family, and I lost the guy's business card. I wish I could find him, but um, the, the whole family went out for dinner, and they made me their guest. And when it came to the end, and it was due to pay the bill, the bill was two thousand their money. And I said, um, "He said, oh, do you want to pay?'" And I go, "No." And I said, "But I'll pay five hundred towards it." So I'm basically paying for a couple of people's meals. And um, but they taught us about a, a lot about the local custom, and uh, because of the religion they believe that they're closer to the spirituality by eating with their hands if i'm getting that right so everyone over there eats with their fingers and at one point the guy's got his hand on his plate and he's using it like a sponge going around and around circles and licking his hand and um you know they don't use toilet paper over there so i keep thinking um but anyway so they got me some nice uh curry chicken and rice it was the first time i had a decent meal over there and trusted it. it was um it was good 
So when I got on the bus, I got closer to this family, and there was about six or seven of them. You know, they travelled with their brothers and their nephews and nieces and their husbands and wives, and eventually I got to know the whole lot. And then he was a really lovely guy, and he worked for HM. Was that, that place called HM? HM? H&M. And he said he works for a big clothing company, and they said they've got 3,600 stores around the world. And then it was HM, HMM. And that was really cool. So anyway, so he was quite, uh, how do I say, wealthy for Bangladesh. Anyway, so then I said, oh, look, I really love your hospitality. He said, have you got, I wouldn't mind videoing you guys singing in the bus. Have you got a song? So they, he got the, they, the, his family started singing the national anthem to me in the back of the bus while the bus is overtaking and doing all sorts of weird, wonderful things on the road. And then there's other younger people that were in front of him they started singing as well and then they started singing uh, let's say hip-hop and the whole bus started singing and for about an hour everyone in the bus was singing it was just actually magical you couldn't sort of got a better moment i got a little bit on video put on tiktok and and just such a lovely family and the bangladesh people are absolutely awesome some of my regrets i didn't go to the refugees camp um bangladesh is really poor but they look after half a million people in the refugees camp um, and that's and if India did kick out uh, people that didn't have the proper paperwork, they would finish up in Bangladesh. And that's why the, Engli- uh, the Indian people are so upset because they said they don't want people to be kicked out of their lovely country and be put in refugee camps in Bangladesh and treated like animals. And that's what one guy said to me. And I said, oh, I've seen the camps on um, YouTube videos and they're not uh, like animals. <laughs> but they are, actually the Bangladesh government are very generous and you can see that by the nature of the people they really do care but just watching a city of 20 million people actually work uh, I wouldn't say it was a Swiss watch but they do have a way of life Uh, I found um, probably to be honest I found India more eye-opening for people like beggars than I did Bangladesh Um, you know I don't think they've got very good health and safety procedures <laughs> uh, in either countries but um, more probably more so in Bangladesh uh, one of the things that sort of really did sort of come home to me uh, I had four things that I've sort of thought I'd endeavor to apply in my life this year but when I were walking the streets you would see a street corner with um, you know somebody like a mum and their children and there literally could be 15 to 20 people working a street corner asking for money. And one of them, one of the ones I liked the most was they have a, a whole lot of balloons and they tap on your window and say, we'd like to buy a balloon. And, um, and then that's how they made their money. And then if you went back to that same intersection at night time, those same people will be sleeping on that intersection. And it must have been, I think it was around Christmas time, and there was a guy who had a car full of blankets and he stopped and opened the door and basically started handing out these blankets. Then there was about 25 of them snatching the blankets and fighting over the blankets, and there was cars going past, and they were tooting like they weren't going to stop. And before you know it, there was just a big riot of people snatching these um, blankets. So then I walked down the road about 300 metres and literally walked past another 100 people laying on the streets. And I I remember doing one of my TikToks, and I said, look, it's you know the difference between New Zealand beggars? They smoke. They drink. They normally have gambling problems and they've done um, bad things or they steal or, you know, and they take shopping trolleys from the supermarkets was one of my pet peeves. I hate people who do that. 
and steal from people like the, the super mega owner. But anyway, in um, Bangladesh, they just they just don't have the opportunities to get themselves out of that. A few of them might be chewing chewing tobacco, um, but they really are each day is is trying to get um, more money so they can survive and um, make to the next day. If it rained, which it did a couple of times, a lot of the people, like you'd see them selling, oh, let's have a guess, uh, maybe, I don't know, five bunches of grapes, maybe um, ten bunches of bananas, a few apples, um, lots of kumara, which was quite warm. Um, and it's like they had maybe, I don't know, let's, um, let's put it into kgs. So let's say maybe 10, 15 kgs of food to sell. And when they sold that food, that's probably where they got their living from. But I believe that the food was provided by another fruit and veg provider and they'll just get a percentage of their sales. So they really are working to feed themselves. I don't know when they shower or bath, or um, but they all um, use the streets like public toilets. Uh, you'd find skip bins. Um, now in Bangladesh especially they do a lot of recycling they look for hard plastic and they do recycle it but there will be a guy in a skip bin there will be a cow eating out of the skip bin there will be dogs um, weaning in the rubbish there will be animals, rats, the whole nine yards and there's a guy inside one of those big skip bins with bare feet digging through the rubbish looking for hard plastic and you sit there and think, oh my goodness, it's just job. And everyone just dumps everything in the streets. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just a different planet. And I think, you know, like he, over here in New Zealand, we live in La La Land. We, we have so many opportunities. We have money. We have houses. You know, you could probably fit 100 people in the house I live in, you know, uh, and they live a better quality life. And all this, you know, you know, looking after the planet stuff is, you know, I just don't think we should be focusing in our own countries, which might be a bit of a silly thing to say. We should be really focusing in, in ways in those countries where we can make a difference. You know, the Bangladesh people were saying our government doesn't clean up the rubbish. And then you would see a ferry turn up and um, that would have transported 500 people. And they're quite clean people. They sweep all the rubbish um, that the people dump while they're on the ferry. And then they open the doors and they sweep it into the river. And you sit there and think, well, how does the Bangladesh government mean to clean up the rivers? And it goes down the river and it's somebody else's problem. And you think, oh my goodness. You know, and one of the things I did really like seeing, I got a plate and it was made completely out of leaf and it was crushed into a plate. And even I threw that away on the ground after I finished with it because it was biodegradable. And the cup that I drank my cup of tea out of was made out of clay. Um, so when you threw it on the ground, it broke into clay. And it literally was made out of clay from the dirt because I saw um, this big pile of clay that they dug a hole for. And the guy was sitting there making these clay cups out of the earth. So it's kind of like, I don't know what the tea tastes like, but anyway, it was pretty cool. So all in all, I got back safe. I got back alive. Um, if I was to go for a seven-day trip, I'd probably pick China. Uh, for a bit of fun, uh, a city, vibrant, lots of people, and lovely people. Uh, if I wanted an experience of a lifetime, definitely would go to Bangladesh. Um, I was the only tourist there. Uh, everywhere I went, I did not find one other person with a backpack on. I didn't see anyone walking around any tourist areas. Uh, I was in a hotel, I heard one guy speaking English, and I looked at him, and he just looked right through me like I wasn't there. 
Um, I don't know what he was doing. He didn't look like a backpacker. Then I, I found a, a young um, kids, a 15 and a, a 17, 18 year old girl, and they spoke really good English. And I, I looked at them and they looked at me like, oh, hi. And I said, how come you speak good English? And they said, oh, uh, we were brought up in Sydney and Australia. No, sorry, Auckland. And then I met their mum and dad, and they spoke good English too. And I said, oh, are you, where are you from? They said, oh, we're from Bangladesh. <laughs> and they said, uh, we left 25 years ago. And uh, he was in charge of doing um, power stations and solar power grids, really interesting stuff. And he said, yes, we work abroad. And I brought the kids back to meet their parents over Christmas. So that was the only two people I uh, met that were, um, you know, with the other English guy and all that sort of stuff. So it was just amazing. And, uh, yeah, it was just, I just really enjoyed it. Um, no regrets, really. Very tiring. I did go to Bangladesh and I did want to ride on a top of a train, but it had to be a bit of an athlete. I didn't really feel like being the tourist that climbed out the window and then grabbed the metal bar at the top and swinging themselves over the top of the train. Um, I thought that would have, um, ended in disaster. And to be honest, I only did see about 15, 20 people sitting on top of the trains. Not quite like you see on the train festival they have every year. So that's about it. Um, so Elite Six, uh, my business networking started this week. We were really light on numbers this week, so there's a lot of people still away. Um, my focus personally this year and for Elite Six, I want people to build uh, stronger communities. Uh, these people that had nothing, you'd be walking down the street in Bangladesh and they'd want a selfie um, of you. Uh, and I, I mean everybody would you're like a celebrity when you're there then they would say I'll oh, come into my shop and have a cup of tea not because I want to sell you one but because I want to be hospitable and the next thing you'd meet their brother and their sister their husband their wife their friend um, and there'd be 10-15 people in the shop talking to you and it was really cool and then you'd go down the road 300 metres and the same thing would happen all day long you get the very slow country to travel but they had no money uh, they all had a story. Uh, literally, you'd see pets, dogs walking around limping with broken legs, and they just have to carry on life like they are. Um, you'd see people with no legs, no limbs, uh, and they just carry on as they are. I remember seeing a blind man uh, tapping his way across the uh, train station, and he got to the edge, and oh my goodness, he's going to fall over, but then he just gets down on the rail tracks, and he was taking a shortcut. <laughs> you know, so everyone, but the point being that they had nothing, but they had a real sense of community, and I think that's something that we miss in, in first, first world countries, is we have the option to keep our lives to ourselves, or we share our lives with other people. So that was my takeaway on that. So my goal was to build stronger communities, um, and really sincerely care about fellow people in your life, you know, show an interest in other people. Uh, I was talking about a, a guy that I'd, he really helped me out 10 years ago, and I asked him how his wife was, and he said, didn't you know we'd broken up um, six or eight months ago? And I said, oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> and, um, and it was just, you know, and I said, why didn't you contact me? Because you really helped me when I was going through my, my divorce. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, I got really depressed and I, I you know, got really down about it and I did think about taking his own life, he said. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, there's people out there who battle through this stuff. Um, sometimes you just need to listen. You just need to say to people, how are you? Show a real genuine interest in them because you're life-saving, you know. Uh, I think we've got more, um, you know, suicides happening in New Zealand than any other country in the world just about, which is ridiculous because we have such a wonderful life. 
Uh, thing number two, I want people to take more uh, take advantage of the opportunities that we have. I said to somebody, imagine giving somebody a credit card saying there's a thousand dollars on here. I'll set you up a, a drop shipping shop, and all you have to do is buy the products at one price and sell them at another, and you can make your living. Uh, I guarantee if I gave that to maybe ten thousand people in Bangladesh, I would doubt very much that I'll take that opportunity because they wouldn't know what to do with it, they wouldn't know how to work it. But over here, we hum and har about these opportunities that we've got on our laps, and sometimes we. We, we, we waste opportunities. So I'm telling people, if you want to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs will have 100 failures and one success. And that's the attitude I think we all need to have. We need to keep trying until we succeed because we have uh, lots of opportunities to do so. The other one, a bit quirky, a bit different, but talk to a stranger. So when you go out for dinner, you might be sitting there. The people, they all keep to themselves. Say good day. Uh, when you go to the loo and you bump into somebody, um, you know, and you're washing your hands, whatever you're doing, say good day. How's your day going? You know, have a conversation with strangers. It always leads to somewhere. We went to Medfin and went out for lunch and we got talking to another couple who were doing the same thing and we had a most enjoyable time. We all benefited from it. It was nice. And I'm still thinking about this uh, lovely couple that we met and they had a dog and. We had a dog, and dog people are always pretty cool to talk to. But yeah, talk to strangers. Don't keep to yourself. I mean, how many times have you been? I remember when I go tramping, you walk past people. You haven't seen anyone for an hour. And you walk past somebody, and you go, g'day. And they walk past you and say nothing. What's that about? <laughs> you know, say day back. How's your day going? Where have you been? You know, come up with a few uh, one-liners you can say to people to get them talking. And the last but not least thing I really want to work on is becoming better versions of yourself because we're all growing older and we all learn stuff and we can share our experience, knowledge and skills. So that's my lecture. I've been talking far too long. I've got a glass of wine in front of me here. I gave up drinking for a year and um, I have started drinking again and I'm just drinking red wine because that was something I really missed. So uh, I haven't even had a swig of it while I've been talking because I've been talking flat out. Uh, I turned 50 uh, on Sunday and me and my partner are going to Melbourne for the weekend and we're looking forward to it we haven't been to Melbourne together but we're both keen street photographers and no better place in the world to go that's civilised than Melbourne so that's what's happening this weekend so thanks for listening to our show and I'll start that wonderful music up and hopefully um, you haven't fallen asleep wakey wakey see you next time mm-hmm.